Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Eric and I decided to dress alike today. (laughs) Can't make that stuff up. It just happens to you. Hey, I don't know if you guys know, but we've been here for... uh, uh, We're here every Sunday, just so you... (laughs) Just so you know... Uh, to those that are upstairs in the overflow, hey, thank you for doing that. I know it's uh, not as much fun as being down here. On the other hand, the AC works better up there than it does down here. So welcome. And I, I haven't been able to say this in two years, but you wouldn't want to eat at a restaurant that wasn't crowded, right? So happy Easter to you and welcome. So uh, let's talk a little science, because who doesn't want to talk about science on Easter Sunday, right? Now, I'm not good at it. So if, you, if I say things that are heretical, I don't need to know. I, I just, it's, you know, it's just, it's just an illustration. We're just going somewhere with it. So don't be upset, don't let it make you mad, don't post on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or any of those things. (laughs) Let's talk just for a minute about entropy. Entropy is uh, the the scientific understanding that everything's deteriorating around us, that at some level, things left unto themselves, they break down over time. Amen? We demonstrate this very well within our own physical bodies. Now, some people here are still on the, you're still on the incline. Your best days are ahead of you, and you know that. You're getting better and better and better. Others of us, we don't know exactly when it happened, but we do know that we tipped over at some point, and we're not getting better and better anymore. Things are deteriorating. We, we see entropy in our own journey and in our own life. And that's the scientific understanding of sort of how the universe, its, it's, it's destiny is in decline. Its destiny is kind of falling apart. Then there's atrophy. That, that's where you haven't used your muscles in a while, and now they don't work the same way they used to. You know, like things that used to come easily for you, they don't really... Even if you just stopped and you said, two years ago when this pandemic started, I had a routine, I had a life, I did crazy stuff. I went out to dinner. I, you know, I did nutty, crazy things. And now I haven't done those things in a couple of years, and it turns out they're a lot harder to do now. I just, you know, I don't seem to have the same energy level that I had because some things have atrophied in me. And that's not just my muscles and my physical reality. That's my attitude and my spirit, you know? And that brings us to the third point, inertia. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. And I mean, I know, you, I know we're all here now, and that's awesome. But for a lot of us, it's been hard to change the routine, you know? 
The other part of that is an object in motion tends to stay in motion. That means when you've been doing what you've been doing, then you tend to keep doing what you've been doing. And it's harder to change. And I'm not that concerned with all of that scientific stuff for what it is, but I am concerned about this. It feels to me like those of us who was in the context of the kingdom of God have adopted a mentality and a theology of entropy. That it's all sort of going towards a place of destruction. That it's falling apart. But that is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That somewhere in there we've practiced an atrophy at our faith. Where, where because we haven't exercised our faith, we haven't trusted God to be powerful and to transform not just our own lives but our world and our culture. We've, we've not exercised those faith muscles and then there's been some inertia. We've, we've gotten in habits, and we just are staying in those habits. Instead of looking in our lives and asking big questions about where ought we to be, where does God desire us to be, where is he leading us to be? And sometimes once we've got set in motion, it's, it's easy to stay in that same pattern over and over and over. So hold those things in your head for just a minute. The disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, would you teach us to pray? And, and, and I think what they're saying to Jesus is not, can you give us a formula by which we could pray? Can you give us a tutorial of what it would mean for us to pray? Now, we've treated the Lord's Prayer like that. I, I bet some of you right now in your brain, you're going, okay, let's see. First we do, you know, praise and honor. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we pray for forgiveness. And then we pray there's a pattern. I don't think the disciples were asking that. The disciples were asking the same question that you and I ask. And that question is this. What words might I speak? What might I formulate that would cause God to hear me and for something to change? How might I speak words? How might I pray? How might I form so that when I pray about this or when I pray about that, that something actually changes, that, that something moves? How will I know how to use words like that? Jesus, if you could tell me one thing, tell me the words I need to speak to get God to tune in and for things to be different. Okay, here you go. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that prayer. Let that prayer be on your lips. And I don't know how it works for you, but for most of us, how it works is this. I wish. It's a wish. Our Father who art in heaven, I now pray upon a star that you might somehow make a difference in my journey and in my life. Maybe even let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a big wish. Jesus didn't understand it as a wish, a hope. We weren't shooting off flares into heaven. When you pray, pray, not with a sense of entropy, <laughs> that it's all falling apart anyway, and maybe you can rail against the darkness. Not with some sense of atrophy, that just because you haven't used faith, or maybe you don't have enough, <laughs> that God can't hear you. And not from a place of inertia where 
You haven't engaged that for a long time, and now it's hard to have faith. I, I would just say to you, in the culture, in the world, on this Easter Sunday, whether you're online or you're in the overflow, you're here in the room, whether you were at the sunrise service, whether you were at 9 a.m. at Pasadena, wherever you were, what does your heart tell you? Does it feel optimistic? Does it feel like you're living in some space of hope? Because there's a kind of work inside of us that pulls us down and pulls us into darkness. Your kingdom come. John, in writing his account of the resurrection story, is giving us a stylized account of the resurrection story. We're going to read it in a minute all together, and, and, and I want you to be ready for it. So, so let me highlight a couple of things that are going on. The first thing is, John tells us, so when I say he's giving us a stylized account, that means that John has specific reasons that he's writing, and he has specific things he wants you and I to understand when we read his account, because his account is distinct from the other accounts of the resurrection. I'll give you the, most, the simplest example. John says, on the, on the morning, it was still dark. Well, that's information that we don't have from other sources. In fact, we have contradictory information. What we have from Matthew is that it was sunrise. And what we have from Luke is that it was dawn. And what we have from Mark is that it was very early. So we don't really get any distinction. John's the only one that tells us it's dark. And likely, it's not because it was dark. It's because he has a reason for telling the story the way he's telling it. And the, why is he saying it's dark? Because it's a moment of confusion. And the account he's going to give is an account of people being confused, not understanding. They're in darkness. They don't get it. It's chaotic. It's weird. It seems more symptomatic of the mood than the time of day for John. John also highlights three characters. There are three characters in his resurrection account, just three, not counting Jesus, who is also there. The first is Mary Magdalene. And John gives us a scene, in fact, three scenes, in which Mary Magdalene will be the single primary person who holds the three scenes together. She will be the one who is present in all three of the scenes, and, and so she's presented as the person who goes to the tomb. Now, John knows that the other gospel writers' accounts mean there are multiple women who make their way to the tomb. You've read that. So his nod to that is the fact that when Mary speaks about what is happening, she speaks of herself in plural. We. We saw. We went. So he's acknowledging that they were there. He's just stylizing the story because he wants you to know Mary, on her own, went and was there. He's highlighting her as a character. Well, we know a couple things about Mary and why he might be doing this. Number one, we know that out of her were cast seven demons. Now, we don't know what that is. We, we are not given the information. But given the way the ancient mind worked, basically, if you had a chronic issue that kept showing up, eventually somebody would say, you know, it's probably just an evil spirit. Amen? So if we went around the room now, you know, maybe somebody could take a mic upstairs to overflow. Maybe you could type it into the comments online. And you could just tell me how many chronic issues you have. I mean, at worst, what can you think of? Go ahead. You can take a minute. Two... Three. I mean, if we're having a really bad day, we might go, well, I got four or five. Four or five chronic issues. Mary had seven. Seven that were well known. Seven that people talked about. Seven from which she was delivered. Seven. That's a lot of humanity. And John wants us to know that this Mary, this Mary who was so terribly broken 
is the witness to the resurrection. And he highlights her. He singles her out. He lets us see her approaching the grave, which brings us to the second thing we know about Mary. She was full of love. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Mary, with zero regard for her own safety, has been the one person who has stayed at the cross. She has stayed with Jesus through the passion, through the crucifixion, through the burial. And now here she is on the first day of the week. She is the first one to arrive at the grave. She's full of love. And John wants us to think about that. He wants us to sit in that space with Mary. The second character in the story is Peter. And John takes pains to let us know that Peter was hanging out with the other disciples, which may not seem profound to you and me, but for Peter, who just denied Jesus, it's a big deal that he's still hanging out with the disciples, that somehow he hasn't been kicked out, that somehow he's maintained leadership, even in the state of his brokenness and his failure. And John wants us to know. So we have Mary who loved much but was, but was so terribly broken. And we have Peter that has so much potential but has failed so greatly at the moment of truth. And then the third character in the story is John himself. He writes himself into the story very early. You can know this when you read the Gospel of John anytime you read these words. And the disciple whom Jesus loved was there. <laughs> you know John's talking about himself. <laughs> He doesn't say his own name. He doesn't call a lot of attention to himself, at least not up front. And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And John portrays himself in the story in a very interesting way. He portrays himself as a person who doesn't get it, who's sort of ignorant, who is innocent and naive and doesn't have much faith He's just watching and learning in very real time, a whole lot like you and I do. And so these three characters play out three scenes. Mary's the only one in all three. The opening scene is Mary coming to the tomb and finding that the stone has been rolled away. The second scene that we call the disclosure is Mary now going and telling the disciples and sharing the confusion. Uh, They still don't know what's going on. They're still trying to figure it out. Now Peter and John are running for the grave, and they get there, and things begin to unfold during this second section. Now all three of the characters are present. And then there's a third section, a third scene, and in that scene we find Mary alone again at the tomb, and that scene we call the actual scene of the resurrection, the opening, the disclosure, and the scene of the resurrection, played by three characters in John's stylized account. I think we're ready to read it. <laughs> Sit in the space and let the words come alive. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) When you write the prose, you get to put it down like you want. He bent over. And he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, <laughs> also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, and one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it they're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. John's account. The Jews had a very specific way of thinking about time. They had been thinking about time in this way for centuries by the time this, these events unfold. That, that's, that way of thinking about time is pretty simple, that in the beginning was creation. And so they have a creation narrative about God creating the world. Everybody with me so far? And then they have a, a narrative about how someday God will fix everything. They called that day the day of the Lord. So God, he made the world... And then over there, he's going to fix the world on the day of the Lord. And in the meantime, we huddle together and we bear up under the load. The Jewish mentality. We just, we just endure. We're going to make it. Thankfully, this theology has not invaded the Christian church. Can I get an amen? God created, and someday, and right now, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, no, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. You, you, you know these words to these songs? Some of you do, some of you don't. This consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free. <laughs> and then go home a crown to wear because there's a crown for me. The problem with this theology is that makes this middle ground where we live pretty sad. Amen? And there's a whole lot of us that have an opinion of entropy about the power of God today. Oh, yeah. He created, and someday he's going to kick everybody out that's messing it up, and he's going to fix it. And until then, I'm going to drudge my way and keep my faith, and shuffle off, and hopefully, if I die quick, I'll get a reward. Amen? So not that different from old Jewish theology before the advent of Jesus Christ. But along came Jesus, and Jesus came and he taught, and he lived. And the disciple says, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, okay, you want to know how to pray? 
Here it is. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that. And pray it every day. And pray it all the time. And pray it in every circumstance. And so then Jesus goes to the cross. And he's crucified. And he's dead. And he's buried. And then he's resurrected to new life. Now the early Jewish Christians who had this opinion about time, creation, the day of the Lord, the drudgery in between, now realized that something crazy had happened that they were no longer in the same narrative, that the whole story had just changed. And what they came to realize, those Jewish Christians in the first century, was that God had interrupted the normal flow of time and had put the end of the story in the middle of the story. What they came to understand is, we're no longer waiting for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord happened. There was death, there was resurrection. Death had been conquered. You can't go into Monday the same way you used to go into Monday. It's different now. All the rules change. We're in a new time zone. We're in a new accounting of history. It can't be the same. So profound was it that these new believers in the first century who had followed the pattern of creation in their style of worship from the beginning of time, what do we do? We work. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? We work. We work six days a week. And then we finally, after we get all our work done, what do we get to do? Rest. We get to rest. And we get to worship. We've done all the work. We work and 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 work. And finally, when all our work is done, <sighs> I'm so glad we haven't adopted this theology. Because the first century Christians said, we can't worship like that anymore. It ain't like that no more. Time, it ain't like that no more. That's a good Texas. Just bleh. It ain't like that. Because God put the end in the middle. So the first century Christians said, we're not going to worship like the Jews used to worship. We're going to worship on the first day of the week. We're going to start the week with the celebration that God finished the work. Now, we still got to go out on Monday and do some stuff. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather on the first day of the week to celebrate that God has set the world right. That He has redeemed time and He has redeemed death. And in Him, there's no more parting, there's no more sadness, there's no more sorrow. Death does not win. Now, it hasn't trickled down into every place yet. But we, with this knowledge and celebration, now go into the week, knowing the outcome before we start, breathing the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not wishing. We already know that his kingdom has come and his will is being done. We are going to be agents who will carry that out in the world day after day. And when we run out of gas, guess what we're going to do? We're going to come back together and worship God and celebrate his victory again so that we are fueled again, so that we go out into the week with his kingdom coming, his will being done, anticipating and knowing that the end has already happened. We're just living in the afterthought. I'm so glad the church has embraced this theology, amen? Because <laughs> here's the truth of it. 
When the church of Jesus Christ stands up and says the end is in the middle, the victory is already won, the world goes, you are out of your mind. I pray so. And I'm not out of my mind, but I'm out of your mind. Amen? N.T. Wright, who really writes about this stuff extensively, and if you don't know who N.T. Wright is, you should. One of the great theologians of our day. He says, the world will shriek against you. When you walk out of a first day of the week celebration proclaiming that God has won a victory and we are simply anticipating all of that to filter into the recesses of life, they will look at you and say, are you out of your mind? Can you not see the entropy of the world? Can you not see how the politics are falling apart? Can you not see how the world global situation is falling apart? Can you not see the demise of human beings? Well, let me tell you, of course. But this is my Father's world. And He has a redemptive heart. And that redemptive heart is reaching And it is reaching for every single human on this planet, in every situation. N.T. Wright says, it's like God has written a play, and the stage is set. And here's the story, the story of redemption. And he's called believers to be the actors on that stage. And he's asking, will you live out your part? And so many of us are in our own play, playing our own part. Instead of saying, I don't know how, and I don't know when, and I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I know this, the end has been put in the middle, and God wins. And I'm going to live like that. I'm going to believe like that. I'm going to hold my head up. And sometimes I'm going to have to shake my head and go, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. But I believe that God is present in ways I cannot imagine. That God is active in ways I cannot imagine. And I don't see the will of God in the journey for His followers as ending. I hear it all the time. Oh, the church is in its decline. Really? Because the believers still need to come together. We still need to celebrate the victory of God. We still need to be filled up again with the vision so that we can walk out into the world and say, I'm going to do my part this week to allow His kingdom to come and His will to be done. And I'm not going to speak those words. I'm not going to speak that. I would, but that's not consistent with who I'm called to be. It's not consistent with the victory that's been won. I'm going to live like a person who believes that God's resurrected body is the truth of how life is going to work. He's bringing me back to life. He's bringing the world back to life. Someday he's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Have you read that part? A new heaven and a new earth. He's going to fix it. And he's made us a promise. In fact, his word goes on to say this. Not only has he been resurrected from the dead, but he's put his spirit in us, a deposit guaranteeing the outcome. Do you live like that? Do you think like that? Do you believe like that? Do you believe in the mission and purpose of Jesus Christ in the world? It's not over. It's not done. The world is a sad place. The world is a crazy place. Amen? Amen. I don't know why, but they thrive on bad news. Isn't it crazy? I mean, I think if I was going to open up a news agency, I'd, I'd want to talk about happy stuff. 
There must be some. But evidently, you can't make money at happy stuff. So, why is that? Because there's something deep inside of us that's our greatest fear. It's our greatest fear that the world is falling apart and life is falling apart and it has no meaning, it has no purpose and there's just entropy and it's all spiraling down to someday when it finally breathes its last and it's all done. Just so you know, that is completely contradictory to the message of that book. That book that starts in a garden ends in a city. And that city is ruled by the Savior of the world who is, by his very character, the essence of love and the essence of compassion and the essence of power and the essence of redemption. And that story, that ending was written in the middle so that you and I do not live our days in drudgery and dread, but we live our days in victory and on our lips are the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a wish. It's our heartfelt belief we are participating in the kingdom that has come, God's will, on earth, as it is in heaven. And the days when I live below it, I'm going to ask for forgiveness and try to live in it. I'm going to let that take over my brain and my heart and my mind and my spirit. And I'm going to look ahead to what is a wonderfully redeemed future because he rose from the dead. We're going to close in a moment. And as we do, the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing over you. I'm not going to sing personally over you because that would be something other than a blessing. (laughs) But I am going to read to you the words that they are about to sing over you. Because, I don't know, it would seem to me that there are some of you that need a blessing today. And this one is powerful. So you can, you know, just soak it up. You can get quiet for a minute. In a moment, I'll ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to read these words over you. Then they're going to sing them over you. Doesn't matter if you're upstairs in the overflow, if you're online. This is our prayer for you. This is the victory in which we participate. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Or you want to hold out your hands. Whatever you want to do to receive the blessing, it's okay. I speak the name of Jesus over you in your hurting, in your sorrow. I will ask my God to move. I speak the name because it's all that I can do in desperation. I'll seek heaven and pray this for you. I pray for your healing, that circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name. I speak the name of all authority, declaring blessings, every promise he is faithful to keep. I speak the name no grave could ever hold. He is greater He is stronger. He is the God of the possible. I pray for your healing. That circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. 
I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name. God, we believe in the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is the end of the story written into the middle. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.